Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Welcome to our 23rd mini failure episode. We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces. Make no mistake, though, these are still significant failures, but they either have pretty straightforward causes or not enough information available for a full episode. These episodes are also just the failure, no news, and no ads, for now at least. It's like failurology light. This week's mini-failure is about Ronin Point, a 22-story tower block in East London that partially collapsed on May 16, 1968. So, full confession, this is one that's been on my radar for quite some time, I looked at it when we initially started the podcast, and I really wanted to do it, but I didn't think there was enough information. I think if we went into full structural details of how the different parts of the building were constructed, we could maybe get there, but I don't think those are as fun to listen to based on my... Or maybe they're just not as fun for me to make. I... I, I don't enjoy the deep structural ones as much. I find them really complicated. Structural's not my discipline, so I do find them more challenging. Because um, like the plain ones, I'm trying to understand what's going on and then relay that information. Anyways. I really like the plain ones. Of course, of course. So I I had looked at this, but then I kind of parked it for a bit because I didn't think we'd be able to do it. And then we started doing the mini failures, but I had also then kind of forgotten about this one. So I'm really excited that I was going through our list the other day and I came across this one again and I was like, oh yeah, I want to do that one. So here we are, Ronin Point, mini failure 23. Here we go. At the time of this failure, the building had only been open for two months. That's not very long. Yeah. And the partial collapse was caused by a gas explosion that blew out some of the load-bearing walls, which led to a collapse of the southeast corner of the building. And there are a lot of pictures of this online, and I think it looks kind of weird because the whole building is still standing, but then you've just got this one corner that's just kind of not there, and all these different panels are hanging off of the building. So it's a really, it's a really kind of weird-looking picture when you first look at it. The building was the second of nine identical tower blocks built in the 1960s by Newham Council and it served as public or affordable housing for borough residents. So in the UK, it's known as council housing. Here in Canada, we call it affordable housing. I believe in the States, it's Section 8 housing. Essentially, it's housing that's partially or fully funded by the government as a way to assist residents and it's had varying degrees of success in most countries. Fun fact, Newham was a relatively new borough at the time. It was created in 1965 with the amalgamation of East Ham, West Ham, and Woolwich. I'm not sure how that works for football rivalries, for who you need to cheer for or don't need to cheer for, if the local team that you used to hate, if now you have to cheer for that team because it's the only team. I'm not sure how that works on the football rivalry side, or soccer, I guess, for the North America people. Thanks to the damage sustained during the Second World War and many houses being from before the First World War, the borough inherited significant housing problems. There was a labor shortage, which led to the government to look for creative building solutions to construct housing quickly and affordably to house over 15,000 residents waiting for accommodations. A lot of people, not a lot of houses, government steps in, does the council housing thing, 
seems like a pretty good solution. So the building, it used a technique called large panel system building, which means that large concrete sections were fabricated off-site and bolted together to construct the building. Construction started in 1966, and it was completed March 11, 1968, 66 days before the explosion and subsequent collapse. I want to add here, so they looked at a number of different building techniques, and they landed on this one. I had thought that this one would be cheaper and faster. It actually wasn't, but this one required the least amount of labor, which really worked with the the critical factors they had building this building. So yes, cost and uh, construction schedule are major concerns in any construction project, but the labor shortage was the biggest factor here with why they went with that system. So building was 22 stories and it sat on a concrete podium with garages and a car deck. Each floor had five flats or apartments with two of them being two bedroom flats and the remaining three being single bedroom flats. Building had two elevators, a staircase, a garbage chute, and a central corridor on each floor that provided access to each unit. So it sounds like a fairly standard smaller footprint apartment building, 22 stories tall, not too many units on each floor. I want to add that there are floor plans on the report that's linked in the sources for this episode, which is in which is in the show notes. So if you want to go through that report, uh, you can see floor plans and layouts of the suites, which I which I think is always really interesting. Floor plans are like maps to me. I you, Clearly, I love maps. I look at them all the time. And so if you do want to look at those, that's that's available. And that does also help make a little bit more clear how how the building was laid out and what was impacted by the explosion. And, and we're going to get to the explosion itself in a minute, but they also have an aftermath of the explosion showing which parts of the building were damaged and how the different pieces of the kitchen were laid out after the explosion. And it's actually really interesting. It's a it's a really detailed diagram for being 1968. One other note about these buildings, each unit had underfloor electric heating, which is great. At least the one that I have is great. This was controlled by the landlord, not great. And they had set points of 18 degrees Celsius in the living rooms and 13 degrees Celsius in the bedrooms and kitchens. That's cold really cold. Yeah, I'm always cold. So this is way too cold for me. I would need a lot of layers. But I think even for people that are that like a cooler space, I still think this is borderline too cold. 13C in the bedrooms is 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 pretty low. And and let's not forget, it's a damp cold. It sounds like it's one of those cold that colds that just gets right to your bones. Like you would never be warm. No matter how many sweaters you put on, you would always be cold and if you're living in council housing you probably don't have a lot of spare money for buying extra clothes or buying top of the line insulated things or being able to spend more money on space heaters if those were a thing back then it's not a good situation you would be cold all day every day all the time and all night i would not be a fan of that so on to the explosion at 5 45 a.m 18th floor resident Ivy Hodge lit a match in her one-bedroom flat to light the gas stove and prepare a cup of tea. When she lit the match, she sparked a gas explosion that took out the internal, non-load-bearing walls of the kitchen and living room, as well as the external load-bearing walls of the living room and bedroom that supported the four floors above. 
The weakness in these prefabricated panels was believed to be from where those vertical walls connected to the floor slab. So there doesn't appear to be a defect with the panels or the slab itself, but with how those two components tied together. So when the exterior walls on level 18 blew away from the explosion, there was nothing left to support the floor slab above, which caused a collapse of the upper floors. And then, of course, they landed on the lower floors and kind of, as we've seen before, created a pancake motion and ended up collapsing the whole southeast corner of the building. So just a little bit more on the layout of the suite. The room at the corner of the unit is the living room and was almost completely destroyed on each floor. The room west of the living room was the bedroom, and this was completely destroyed from level 17 up, but from level 16 down, the damage was not that extensive. And then the room north of the living room was the kitchen. The wall between the living room and the kitchen was a main load-bearing cross wall and did not fall on any level, although it was damaged on level 18. And the kitchens were relatively unaffected, which I thought was really interesting because the explosion happened in the kitchen from what I can tell. And so I thought it was interesting that the wall between the kitchen and the living room was fine, but then all of the walls past that were damaged. And so I didn't really find this in the report, but I wonder if she lit the match before she walked into the kitchen. I don't really know. I just thought that was kind of weird. And again, that's why I think looking at the drawing was was really interesting. The unit opposite the one that contained the explosion had its front door and some internal doors knocked off their hinges. Windows were shattered, and there was some movement of the non-structural partition walls. The fire doors in the central corridor on level 18 were shattered. One of the elevator doors was blown into the elevator shaft, and the other was buckled. But there was virtually no blast damage or visible structural damage elsewhere in the building. Further testing confirmed that the rest of the building hadn't moved or settled in any way as a result of the explosion or collapse. And I think that's one of the fortunate things about this building being so new is that they had quite a bit of data on on where all of the different floor elevations were supposed to be and how the different components of the building were supposed to go together. And so they would have had pretty accurate data to compare to before and after the explosion, which I thought was maybe that maybe that was beneficial to them at the time. Luckily, three of the four corners from floors 19 to 22 were unoccupied at the time of the explosion. Unfortunately, four of the 260 residents died immediately from the collapse, two from level 22 and two from level 17. 17 residents were injured, and I think we owe the relatively small number of injuries and deaths to the fact that some of the building was not fully occupied and the explosion was limited to the southeast corner. So this could have been substantially worse, but there were some outside factors that really worked in favor of this not being as severe as it could have been. Also, since the building was only two months old, it's not unreasonable to assume that all of the life safety systems were functional, which I think is another good point to bring up. Over time, systems degrade, and if they're not maintained or inspected, when they do need to function, they're just too old to function, or they're just not in working order to function. So the fact that this building was very recently commissioned. I think that also does help for any of the the life-saving systems that they had. And also, this is a fairly modern building compared to some of the other building collapses that we've looked at. So technology this over time gets gets better and better. 
Yeah, I want to add to because this building is not necessarily the exact same as Grenfell Tower that we covered way back on episode four, but it was council housing as well. It was built within the 60s and 70s, so it's kind of from the same era. And one of the things that did not work so well for Grenfell was that they hadn't maintained any of the life safety systems. And so when the fire happened in 2017, combined with the combustible cladding, it was really, really detrimental. As we've talked about, and as I'm sure a number of you already know about, the Grenfell Tower fire is horrible. I'm still kind of in shock that it's happened and it's it's been five years. But I think the fact that this building was brand new was beneficial to this this explosion. And it, I think it could have been worse. Interestingly enough, Hodge, who was the woman that lit the match that started this fire, she was actually not one of the four people that perished in this fire. So I think it's quite remarkable that the immediate source of the of this explosion and fire, she s- survives this. I, I'm not sure how, but uh, she winds up surviving, which which I think is quite remarkable. So the explosion in her flat caused a fire, which was fed by the damaged gas pipe, and the fire department was on scene 16 minutes after the explosion. Fire was quickly brought under control, and once the gas was turned off, it was immediately extinguished. So they removed the source of, of ignition. The fire pretty much goes out right away, which is which is great. Not that I intended to have this episode be a comparison to Grenfell, but, and if I remember correctly, they were not on scene that fast. 16 minutes is pretty quick. And also they didn't bring the proper equipment to reach the fire above, I think it was above the fourth floor, but it might have been taller. I can't remember. It's been a while. So there were a lot of things that went well, I guess you could say, in this failure that that helped it not be as bad as it could have been. So in the immediate aftermath of the collapse, the government commissioned the Griffiths Inquiry, which was led by Hugh Griffiths, and they found the following. Gas had escaped into the unit due to a substandard brass nut that joined the flexible gas piping from the gas supply pipe or the gas riser to the stovetop. So there's a flexible hose that runs from the vertical pipe that goes through each suite over to the stove. And the nut that was used to connect the two is what ultimately led to the gas leak. When Ivy Hodge lit the match, the built-up gas exploded. The installation of the stovetop was not deemed to be the cause. The pressure of the explosion was within normal ranges of domestic gas explosions. And the behavior of the building collapse following the explosion wasn't the result of faulty workmanship in the manufacturing of the sections or in the erection on site. So as we talked about, it was the detail for how those vertical walls connected to the slab. The people didn't install them wrong. They were just underdesigned. And while the building was designed to applicable building codes, there was no section regulating large concrete panel construction. The building code and the designers also didn't account for a progressive collapse, which is essentially the pancaking motion of the upper floors landing on the lower floors and causing them to collapse. Had they allowed for that, it's possible that this only would have damaged the 18th floor and maybe 17 and 19, the the floors above and below, but it's possible that it wouldn't have spread to the entire southeast corner of the building. The building was also designed to handle code-specific wind loads. However, it was deemed through the investigation that those wind loads, those code-specified wind loads, were outdated and the building would likely see higher wind loads than it was designed for. 
The inquiry also made a number of recommendations to prevent similar explosions and collapse, which I think is a good thing for them to do. Gas supplies should be disconnected from existing tall buildings until they have been strengthened. Consideration should be given to a requirement to notify the gas board of any new gas installations. Consideration should be given to improving ventilation in high blocks. The regulation for the storage of explosive material in high blocks should be reviewed. All blocks over six stories should be appraised by a structural engineer. Where necessary, high blocks should be strengthened. Designers of new tall blocks should design them so they are not susceptible to progressive collapse. Designers should have regard to recent research on frequency and duration of high wind speeds. And finally, designers should have regard to the effects of fire on the structural behavior of the building. All of these recommendations sound like great recommendations to me. Yeah, so this this failure happened in 1968, and there were building codes at the time, but building codes are an ongoing thing, and we are a much more reactive species, humans are, than proactive. And so as things go wrong and failures happen, the code the codes get strengthened. And part of me wishes that the codes were just stronger to begin with, but it's also really hard to foresee things that have never happened before and figure out what the risks are and learn from those mistakes and correct them. So I I see because this was so old how that can kind of happen. I wouldn't accept this today. I think this would be uh, unacceptable. But 1968, when the codes weren't quite up to snuff, I think um, I'm not going to say it's acceptable, but it's better. So Ronin Point was rebuilt after the explosion using strengthened joints. So they did update those joints where the vertical walls met the slab. The building code was updated to ensure similar designs would not be permitted in the future. And it's been said that such improvements prevented the collapse of Grenfell Tower, as we've talked about before, built in 1974 and we covered on episode four of our show. So Grenfell Tower, while that fire was horrific and spread throughout the entire building, the building is still standing today, actually. I don't think they have demolished it. It was supposed to be demolished in 2021, if not sooner, but COVID's kind of pushed that back. And I think it's still, unfortunately, standing today. They have covered in a cladding so that no one has to look at the fire damage, but they really need to tear that thing down so people don't have to look at it and be reminded every time they look at it of the horrible fire that happened. Ronan Point was eventually demolished in 1986 after architect Sam Webb flagged concerns related to the structure of the building. They demolished it in a forensic manner rather than with explosives, and when they did that, they found cracks in the concrete on lower floors where it had been point-loaded. It's believed that had it not been demolished, Ronan Point would have collapsed during the Great Storm of 1987. So that was just one year after they took it down. And that storm was a violent extratropical cyclone in October of 1987 with hurricane force winds. The highest winds recorded were 139 kilometers per hour with gusts up to 216 kilometers per hour, which is very fast wind. Very, very powerful. And as a callback to our very, very first episode, the City Court building, they had a similar problem where they didn't design for the proper wind loads. But luckily, the structural engineer discovered it 
shortly after the building was completed and they were able to reinforce the building and that one is still standing, which is great news for it. So there you have it, Ronan Point. A bad fitting and a lit match led to the collapse of the southeast corner of the tower block in East London. Humans are more of a reactionary species than proactive, like we've talked about a number of times, and so, like many of the failures we've covered, legislation was updated after the collapse to prevent similar incidents from happening. Thanks for listening to this mini-failure episode. For our regular episodes, check out Failureology wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failureology. You can email us at thefailureologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us right in the Patreon app. And there's links to all of these in the show notes. Bye, everyone. Talk soon.